On today's More Than a Test, we have Jenny Jordan. She's the executive director of Teach Start. Teach Start is trying to solve this problem every district talks about every single week, which is our teacher shortage. They're hoping that they can help people join the teacher pipeline through substitute teaching and alternative licensure. However, she's got a lot of insights on everything from Teach for America, different charter schools, what's happening in California, and all the different ways we can look at solving problems in education. Jenny, thank you so much for being here today. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. I'm really glad. I'll be honest. So we hadn't talked in over a decade. We both went to grad school together at Stanford and we hadn't talked in over a decade. And then we were both asked to be on a webinar and it was like being back in classes with you. You were so um, articulate and inspiring and thoughtful. And I just am so excited that you're willing to be here today. So thanks again. Thanks for saying that. It was so lovely to reconnect and and to get to spend time together in this new way and this new phase of, of our work together. Exactly. That's exactly what it feels like. It's like a new chapter, but it's a beautiful view of the past. Um, so right now you are the executive director at Teach Start, and I feel like Teach Start's a little bit fresh and new. So why don't you tell me a little bit about Teach Start? That's right. Teach Start is new. So we're about a year and a half in, and we started Teach Start because we had this belief or this bet that there are a lot of people out there who want to be teachers if we can just let them in, if we can just make it easier for them to access the profession. You know, we're in this moment of so much angst around teaching and there's a teacher shortage and teachers are leaving and teachers are are really challenged and all of that is so true and I don't want to minimize that. And we also believed that there were a lot of people saying, hey, teaching is an incredible way to serve my community. Teaching is a great way for me to access the middle class and to build a better future for my family. But those folks weren't able to become teachers. So we started asking the question of what could we do to actually create a new pathway for those people to enter the the classroom? So that's what Teach Start is about. The way we do that, the way that we create a pathway into teaching is we hire folks to work full-time as substitute teachers or paraprofessionals. During that year, they earn a debt-free teaching credential They also get some really excellent training just on sort of the basics of classroom management and supporting students. And they're paid a full salary with benefits and paid time off. So that's a model that works for working adults. So that's the core of what we're doing. Okay. And so I think a lot of people kind of see a parallel between what you used to do at TFA and what you Mm -hmm. do now in Mm -hmm. that TFA was bringing people who didn't necessarily know they wanted to be teachers into the profession. And you're bringing Mm -hmm. people who know they want to be teachers, but maybe don't have the opportunity. Is that kind of where you're drawing that line? Exactly right. Exactly right. I I spent a lot of time at Teach for America, which I think is doing incredible work, but is not a solution for the folks who say, I want to be a teacher and the pathways out there aren't going to work for me. So, you know, of of the people we've recruited, about a third are parents. Our average age is 32. Half of them are first-gen college. These are folks for whom the traditional models don't work. And so we're trying to identify a way that lets them in the classroom. Um, That speaks so much to me. I've been an educator for a very, very long time. I was a principal, a teacher, um, and I'm now a parent. We were just talking before the call that I now have Mm three-year-old twins. And I think I'd be a much better educator even with all of my training and support because of what I know about being a parent at this point. So it's exciting to think about also parents kind of entering the profession. Um, The one thing I have a question about, so um, like I said, I've been in education for a long time. I'm now Mm -hmm. in the business realm. And the one thing that we talk about a lot at Amira is that you know you have something special when three things align. You have a a problem to solve, Mm -hmm. the people who can solve it, 
and there's money and there's money somewhere. Right. And so like the way we say, and, and when I look at what you're talking about problem, 100%. Mm-hmm. Two years ago, superintendents, teachers, all they wanted to talk about was the the learning loss during COVID. Mm-hmm. Now, all anyone's talking about is a teacher shortage. Mm-hmm. The right person in the room, I've already said how much like you inspire me, just how incredibly intelligent you have. This just the most amazing background. But I have a really hard time seeing where there's money in this. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just curious, like how, how, what, how are you looking at that part of this? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love that, that framework of those three um, legs of the stool that need to be there. So I think actually what what drew me to this model is that there is money in this. So schools already spend money on substitute teachers. That's always been a reality of our schools, that schools need to pay subs, both because teachers are human and need to miss school and because we want to have time and space for educators to step out of the classroom to pursue professional learning. So subs are, are and always have been a core part of a school's operating model. Traditionally, though, subs are essentially sort of just the money's not going anywhere beyond just paying for that sub. What we're trying to do is take that money that would have been spent on a sub, pool it so that we can then recruit higher quality subs, recruit subs who have training, um, recruit more diverse subs, and then pay those subs a full-time salary with benefits so that it's more professionalized and they're able to show up at work with more energy. So the, the money is there in the existing funds that are set aside for substitutes. We're just trying to spend it in a smarter way. Oh, interesting. And so, okay, so you're saying there's already funding there. We're just going to kind of reallocate it mm-hmm. and possibly be spending less on some, because there are really big, I don't know if people realize this, large like substitute teaching companies Yes, yeah. Um, that make quite a yeah. bit of money. So that makes yeah. sense. And when you're looking at like who you're, first of all, who you're recruiting for, so the districts, mm-hmm. the schools, who's in the biggest need of teachers? Who is the most excited about the solution? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, our, our school partners are, are really excited. I think they're excited both about us solving the short-term sub-crisis that they're facing and about then getting to use those subs to work full-time the next year. So we're hearing a lot of excitement from our partners, have seen partners you know, come back to us asking to go from 10, 10 Teach Start Fellows this year to 75 next year. So we're seeing a lot of, a lot of energy from our schools um, around the need there, which is, of course, great validation since we, we want to be there. But is it mostly public. charter schools, private mm. schools? Is it everybody? Is it charter? It's a mix of charter and district right now. Okay. We're focused on serving high needs communities. And those communities are, of course, the ones that most often are in need of teachers. And so those are the folks that we're targeting. Okay. And the other side of the problem, the people who want to become teachers, but are, are unable to access, you know, whether it's the credentials, the, mm-hmm. the university degree or whatever, um, what do they want to teach? Yeah. Um, we have a whole mix of, of folks. So we right now are credentialing folks in all of the core subjects, we're asking a question of ourselves of whether or not we should focus more narrowly on the highest need subjects of STEM um, and special education and bilingual. Though right now we're letting folks come in um, and tackle anything. And it's really a range. We have folks, you know, with all different different interests um, based on all the different motivations that people have for wanting to teach. And then when you were talking about this, you were saying, you know, so there's substitute teaching, there's teacher training, there's certification so that you can become a teacher. At Amira, one of the things that we play a big role in is bringing science of reading to a lot of schools and districts mm-hmm. that didn't have it. For I, I'm sure mm-hmm. you've listened to Sold the Story and, and know kind of like the literacy wars that are going on. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious, like, how are you getting really high quality training and what are you seeing that you really like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that feels so, so <laughs> crucial. And I love the work that you all are doing on what just feels like 
it should be happening in our schools. It's, it's so frustrating from the outside. This is a, this feels like a problem that we should have been able to figure out. Um, so I'm so glad that you all are, are pushing there. So our training right now for our folks focuses on first and foremost classroom management, since they are working as substitute teachers and paraprofessionals. Um, and then sort of the next layer down is helping them to evaluate lesson plans and curricula in front of them, of which this sort of science of reading reading um, lens it feels uh, crucial. One of our challenges, as is, as is the challenge really for all, all alternative certifications, is time with our educators. So we pay them to train, which I think is one of the reasons why we've been able to recruit so many educators, why we've been able to recruit such diverse educators. And we don't have limitless days for them to do training. And so figuring out what's most crucial in their training is, and, and how we weigh different trade-offs is, is an ongoing question for us. Well, yeah, and I think for your partners as well, right? I think what you're asking, mm-hmm. we hear this every year, every year at the beginning of the school year, we want to come in and do training around Amira or Science of Reading or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And the first thing they say is, well, we have two days before the first day of school that right. you can fit in. Can you fit in in 27 minutes? And we're like, right. I, what do you want me to do in 27 minutes? Right. So I totally I totally understand that. Um, okay, mm-hmm. let me ask you somewhat of a controversial question because mm-hmm. I'm sure I live in Boulder, Colorado. Just a few years ago, all of our teachers went on strike here in Colorado mm-hmm. for higher pay. And I think there are some people who are hoping that the teacher shortage will shake the system up and teachers mm-hmm. will get paid more. Mm-hmm. But if we keep finding alternative ways to find teachers, then maybe we won't have mm-hmm. those issues. What do you think about that? Mm-hmm. Um, I hope that we are able to shake the system up and, and both pay teachers more and create the working conditions that will retain our educators and support and develop them as the professionals that they are. I hope that that is true. And students today deserve and need teachers. I also believe that the shortage is just exacerbating the tough working conditions that our educators are in and making it even harder on our current people. So I'm, I'm thinking about an educator I know who's, who's been teaching for about 15 years in Richmond, California, who told me that in an average year, they used to have about 10 fights a year at his elementary school. This year, because of the teacher shortage, they're having 10 fights a week. Wow. And that that is then driving out experienced educators and new educators alike. So my response to that question is, is yes, we do need to improve the conditions for our teachers. And we can't put teachers in a situation where they're having to deal with 10 fights a week and then quitting even more. And it's just this doom spiral. And is that how you ended up with this? Is that you you, you were seeing the problem in somewhere else? Or did someone bring a teacher to you? How did, like, because you were working for TFA Bay Area, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Working at TFA Bay Area and was seeing this, this challenge we had, which was we had these educators who were going through Teach for America's robust process, getting in, saying yes, doing all of the onboarding, and then quitting right when the reality became real. So never got into classrooms, but sort of were the day before, let's say, you know, starting their training would quit. And those were most often educators of color and first generation college. So what that told me is that there are these people who want to be teachers. Clearly they want to teach. They've gone through this process. They want to serve their community. But when the financial realities come to bear, when the bureaucratic realities come to bear, they're not able to make it work. And so it sparked this question for me of, huh, how can we tap into that sort of low-hanging fruit of people saying, I want to be a teacher? How many more of them are there out there? How can we help those folks become teachers? This was, that was really the genesis was, again, this belief that there are people who want to teach. We just have to help them access the classroom. Um, 
I think, I think that's really great. And I, di- I didn't know that, that that was the reality at TFA, mm-hmm. that, that people, I was in the Peace Corps right out of college, and it was kind mm-hmm. of the same thing. People went through all the training, they learned the language, and then the day mm-hmm. before people would leave. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's curious that it also happens um, here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. with TFA. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't know that. You were at TFA at kind of a tumultuous time. Like, what you're talking about is somewhat tumultuous. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about managing and leading that? I mean, I'm sure you're going through this now as well, but at that time with some of the, some of the big questions that were happening at TFA, mm-hmm. how, what was it like for you? Yeah. I mean, first I just have deep belief in, in Teach for America and deep gratitude for, for what Teach for America has fueled in the movement. Um, it's just so many leaders that I, I look at and started their, their career and the work they've done for kids at Teach for America. I think for me, one of the biggest lessons learned um, as a leader and, and leading through change is just the the value of deep listening and of seeking input, um, even when you can't make the decision that people want. Sitting down with folks and having one-on-one relationships and conversations, I think, is, is really powerful um, and something that I've tried to bring forward. Okay. I love the idea of deep listening and I love the idea of one-on-one conversations. Mm-hmm. But like I said, you and I were both talking about how we're both working in businesses. We both have kids. Yeah. How, how do you prioritize? Do you feel like you prioritize it? And, and tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. I think that's so tough, right? Figuring out what the right balance is and, and whether you have kids or not, like the to-do list is always longer than, than what you can actually do. Um, I think for me, it's, prioritizing the voices of those closest to the work and most impact impacted by decisions. So you obviously can't and shouldn't talk to everyone about every decision. Um, but if you can get really clear on the decisions that will have the most ripple effects and who the people are that will be really affected by them and engaging those folks, even if it's a five minute call, um, that has felt powerful and, and high leveraged for me to your point about time. Can you think of a TFA decision that you were, that you made that wasn't popular, but that you're proud of? Yeah. Um, let's see. We had to, um, early on, restructure some of our teams to be able to afford to bring in enough educators. And I think there was a question of, should we actually keep our staffing as it is, both to keep those folks on the team, but also to provide more um, even more robust support for educators, or should we focus on on bringing in more teachers? And had to make a decision given the moment we were in, given the teacher shortage we were in, about how to move forward. There decided to go the route of bringing in more educators, and and certainly there were people who felt like that wasn't the right choice. For me, looking at the landscape, looking at what our schools were telling us, looking at what teachers were telling us, it just felt like the the only choice in front of us. So for people who don't understand like TFA, so you have like a district, like not a district office an, an office, you have a, an mm-hmm. office that's like built around training and development and supporting mm-hmm. teachers and ban- balancing the budget, making everything happen, making mm-hmm. sure teachers get placement and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. then you have the actual core members who are in the classrooms. That's like right. They are actually teaching, right? So that's there are right. lots of people who work for TFA who are not in a classroom. That's right. And so you had to make the choice of, do I keep my staff? So you're not even talking about growing your staff. You're t- deciding, mm-hmm. am I cutting people mm-hmm. to get more teachers in classroom? Because that's what that's our budget right. will allow for. Yeah, and you chose right. more teachers in classrooms. That's right. Yeah. Wow. I, I can imagine that's really hard because those teachers in the classrooms, you wouldn't have had to look at every day, right? They right, would have been right. somewhere that's else. Right. That's right. So and everyone is doing great work, you know, it, and, and important work. It's not there. I don't think there was, was anything that wasn't valuable that was being done. Um, so of course, hard, hard trade-offs. 
Okay. And then when you look at, uh, can you think of a decision that you made that maybe you would have made differently if you got it again? Yeah. Um, I think to my earlier lessons learned around input, decisions made around particular structures of teams and how to organize the work where I didn't have the right voices in the room um, and made decisions based on what I thought to be true, but wasn't what ended up being true and, and wish that I had been, been um, better willing or better able to slow down and hear from all the people who would be affected so that I could have been more informed um, about how to, how to structure a team, for example. Okay. Without throwing anyone under the bus, like, yeah. can you think of like one time where you're like, I listened to the wrong people? Um, yeah, I think, you know, listening to folks who have sort of, uh, been there before and, and think they, they know, um, maybe they worked at a different organization with some similar questions, listening to those folks, um, looking externally for guidance versus just talking to the folks who are doing the work themselves, which, you know, sometimes it's hard to engage people in their own job changing. So the impulse is is to sort of uh, protect people from having to engage in, in scary conversations about their role. But I think that's a mistake because people should be trusted to, to help you shape uh, the future of their own job. That makes sense. Okay. So and on a hard decision you're facing right now at Teach Start, where mm-hmm. what are some of the hard conversations you're having right now and really trying to listen to the right voices? Yeah. I think for us, one of the most crucial questions that we're asking is how do we balance our bold ambition of opening the funnel to as many aspiring educators as possible? How do we balance that with retention? And so therefore, what is the right retention goal? What is the right admissions process? Um, What is the right level of support to, to provide to our educators? And so trying to figure out where in the ecosystem we want to fit. Do we want to be an organization that admits anybody? Clearly, that's not the answer. But Or do we want to be an organization that's incredibly selective um, and 100% of our people are retained through the year? And that's also not the answer. So figuring out where we fit and then what that means for how we operate is, it has, is I think, will be an ongoing question for us as an organization. And when you talk about retention, you're just saying retention for one year. You're not even saying year over year. I mean, both. I think, you know, of course, if our ambition is to have folks who are career educators, I want them to retain year over year, but I also don't want to close the funnel on the front end to only people that I'm 100% confident will be retained. And so that's that's the question. Well, especially because the problem you're trying to solve is the opportunity gap, right? right. Yes. I think, you that's know, right. TFA was not recruiting people with an opportunity gap. Most yeah. of those people already have degrees, often that's from right. very prestigious universities. You're looking for the people where there's a much larger opportunity gap, which means it's harder to sort whether or not they have the credentials. Yes. Um, And my impression, and I think this has changed a little bit, but my impression at one point of TFA was that retention beyond their two years was not Mm -hmm. a huge concern of theirs, that people coming and doing two years and then going to law school was kind of part of the deal. Um, But it feels like to me, if this is in people's communities, right, if they're serving their Mm -hmm. communities, you're hoping Mm -hmm. they're going to stay not just one year, but 10. Yes, that's the hope, is that we're finding folks, as you said, because this is part of their community, because we're finding folks who are serving in often their, their home school that they went to high school in, um, and they're in the school that their kids are in school and that those folks will stay. And that is our ambition. So the thing that we hear the most at Amira when mm-hmm. school teachers are using our product for the first time is teachers have too much to do, 
right? They just can't yes. like we're a new tech product and it's a weird, like kids are reading out loud to an AI tutor. Like there's mm-hmm. a lot going on there. Mm-hmm. Is that the experience that you're having as well? Is that the list is just too long for American teachers? Yes, I, that is, I think definitely true. The list of day-to-day tasks is too long. The list of skills is also too long that we're asking our teachers to be good at so many different things. I think is too much. I do think that one potential solution there is having enough different adults in the school building to lighten the load for our educators. So we're having some interesting conversations with organizations like the Opportunity Culture, if you know them, that are trying to think about different staffing models where we lighten the load on the core teacher by having more paraprofessionals, by having more substitutes, by having more assistant teachers, by having different kind of folks in the building. So I'm excited about the role that Teach Start can play there too by bringing more adults into schools so that the credentialed teachers don't have to do absolutely everything because there's an adult who can take on a different piece of, of their role. Is that happening a little bit for you where you're getting people in, you know, getting them to be substitute teachers or paraprofessionals and they kind of decide that's good enough, right? It's not mm-hmm. about becoming a teacher. And, and mm-hmm. even that is a pretty big lift for schools. Yeah, we have, I'm actually happy about that when we have, our model is designed for folks to, to close, as you said, that opportunity gap and become full-time teachers But I'm excited when we have folks who say, you know what, actually, I love subbing and I want to stay in the classroom as a long-term substitute teacher. We need those people, too, in our schools. And so I'm also excited about that outcome. Um, Okay. And then, you know, another issue that we come to terms with at Amira is, Mm -hmm. like, there's policies in place that block us, right? Really good intentioned Mm -hmm. policies, really good intentioned programs. In Colorado, Mm -hmm. the READ Act, whether or not I think, you know, as someone who was a teacher and a principal here, it was was a rough thing. And now it's a barrier Mm -hmm. for Amira. Do you have that issue? Do you have policies that are in place that are are kind of breaking things down for for you? Yeah. I, I think similarly, there are a lot of policies where the intention is to hold up the professionalism of teaching to ensure that we have a high bar for entering this profession. And I agree with that. We have to have teachers treated as the professionals that they are. And sometimes the way that that plays out in a bureaucracy can be incredibly burdensome for people where we've literally had educators blocked out because they spelled their middle name wrong on a form and then they're not able to start teaching for a whole year. Um, or they you know, come really close and have taken the, the testing requirements, you know, four times and are failing by one point. And, you know, it feels like really like that person can be a great teacher. They're from the community. They, we should be able to find ways for them to enter the profession. And so similarly, it's well-intentioned with something I think we all agree in, which is agree on, which is let's have a bar for being the people serving our most precious asset of children. And sometimes the way it plays out can just create these, these, barriers that are really tough on aspiring teachers. Well, and what we're learning from the science of reading is even people with the degrees, with all of the interventions, you give them bad curriculum and, you know, and kids are getting hurt anyways. Right. So it's, it's, it's such an interesting thing. Um, I'll be honest, when I was a principal, I had a, I had a paraprofessional, fabulous paraprofessional Mm -hmm. who took the praxis, which is the test you take to get certified in teaching Mm -hmm. for, in some cases. And I think she was on her sixth time and really good. She had been in classrooms for so long. She would be a great teacher, really understood phonics, understood how to teach. It just like this one test was such a barrier for her. Um, and, and so, you know, like we banded as a team and kind of like taught her how to do it and it took forever, but what it's, it's true that there are these somewhat arbitrary, you know, like I know they have good intentions, but I I would say that it's somewhat arbitrary things that aren't helping us Mm -hmm. in in any way. 
Mm-hmm. That's right. And when you see it at the individual level, the example of your paraprofessional is a great one of makes sense from a system design standpoint, maybe, but when, when you see the trickle down effects of this one great para can't become a full-time teacher, um, that's it, when it starts to feel like this can't be the right answer. Now you're based in California and in California mm-hmm. at one point they did try, I think it was like in the late eighties, they tried to have like a, a class size regulation. Do you, do you mm-hmm. know what I'm talking about? Um, I, I don't know to have fewer, to, to cap the number of students. Basically, yes, that in California, yeah. across the state, they tried to cap the number mm-hmm. of students so that, mm-hmm. to your point, put more kids in the buildings, right? Mm-hmm. Or more adults in the buildings, not more kids, mm-hmm. more adults mm-hmm. in the buildings, mm-hmm. take mm-hmm. the burden off. And what ended up happening mm-hmm. was the schools that were already hurting ended up hurting even more because mm-hmm. the people who were certified and doing well went to like the fancier, nicer, easier schools, and those schools were left with pretty big holes. Yeah. Uh, um, do you know, like, what do you think about that? Is, is, is that the point of like including in communities? Like, what are you thinking here? I think you're speaking to the fact that unfortunately the reality is that our schools with the biggest teacher shortages are our high poverty schools. That is where we're excited that our solution is grounded in communities. As you said, that we're able to recruit folks from the communities and that we're able to recruit folks who are of color and first generation college um, so that they are folks who are often coming from that that same community. So the hope is that those people will then stay and and want to work in the the school that they went to or the community that they grew up in. Okay, I want to go back to one more thing that you said, and I've kind of yeah. I've been sitting here and because I, I love what you're doing, <clears throat> but this this billboard that used to exist in Texas just keeps coming to my mind. Mm-hmm. So I was a teacher in Texas. I also was mm-hmm. an assistant principal in Texas, and when you used to drive down in Houston, you would see this huge billboard that would say want to teach? When can you start? And Mm -hmm. I remember every time I saw it, it was like getting like stabbed in the back. (laughs) You know what I mean? Of like, this is not that profession. This is not for everyone. And so I I guess that's, you know, there is a part of this that is someone who Mm -hmm. wants to get this, but it's not for everyone. Can you kind of talk about that? How do do you see that billboard? Yikes, right? (laughs) I I think that (laughs) billboard is a, a symptom of something that's not working. And I think it is a signal that is dangerous about teaching that you can just start whenever. Right. Um, and anybody can be great at it, which I don't believe. What I do believe is that teaching is an incredibly challenging profession that people can learn with the right supports. I think we need more pathways that give people those supports than we currently have. I think we also need pathways to give people those supports where they can see if teaching is right for them before being locked into a career. Right now, the most common way to become a teacher is to go to a teacher's college, in which case you often don't get real experience, really, really teaching until after you've graduated. And at this point, that's what your degree is in and and you're sort of locked in. And so I'm excited about models that let people um, really confirm that this is what they want to do before they take on all of that training and the accompanying debt, um, before they, before they are sort of now forever in this role that is not for everyone and and is a steep learning curve. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I was just in Stockton, California, because we have a Mm -hmm. program there where high school students, um, help elementary students use Amira after school. So the kids are getting their reading with Amira and the tutoring, but the high school is there for like the social emotional connection, Mm -hmm. the tech help when they need it. Mm -hmm. And just like kind of like promoting that reading is cool. Mm -hmm. Um, 
so when we asked the high schoolers, I was shocked we got high schoolers to sign up for this, to be totally honest. Like, yeah. we're not paying them. We're just like, you know. And I said, why do you want to do this? And every single one of them said, well, I think I might want to be a teacher. I think mm. I might want to do this, like, for my that. time. And it was just like, yes. it's a it's a, lo- it's a pretty easy way. And I think I think the more we can have people trying it out before they end yeah. up there, I think, yeah. I think you're really right. I love that. Right. Getting people both tasting how rewarding and incredible teaching can be. And also seeing the challenges so that people can really make an informed choice about the kind of leadership they want to have in their community. Okay. So what has been, like, think of one person who has become a teacher through Teach Start mm-hmm. that really inspires you. Can you tell us that story? Yeah. Um, I'm thinking about one educator, Miss Prow, who um, started with us in our first year. She had always wanted to be a teacher, did not have great college counseling as a first-generation college student, and so didn't know that you had to get credentialed in college, but didn't let that deter her from her dream of teaching and instead pivoted to serve in preschool. So taught preschool for a decade, had a baby, could no longer afford to be a mom on a preschool educator salary, and so was planning to leave teaching until she found us. Through Teach Start, she was able to support her family work full-time while earning her credential in her home community and then became a teacher full-time in, in that home community, serving the same students that she had subbed with um, for for that, that year. Um, and so I just, I love that that is an example of someone serving their community. It's an example of us tapping someone like the paraprofessional you spoke of who has all this great experience already. They're ready to teach. They just need us to help them overcome the barriers in their way. Um, and of someone who's able to build those sort of long-term relationships with students by starting out as a sub and then continuing on as their educator in the, the following year. If you get the chance, you'll have to listen to the podcast with Todd Grindle. He works for SRI. He does the research mm-hmm. there. And um, they just did some research in preschool education. And one of the things that they found is kids are way more likely to be suspended or expelled in preschool. Mm. And it's because teachers are so underpaid and mm. under um, certified in preschool mm. as compared to other schools. So like everything you're saying really resonates and yeah. in that it also trickles down to our kids. Right. Yeah. So yeah. it's not just a teacher shortage. It's not just right. a sub shortage. It's that these like teachers who are not getting days to, to get certified, all of those things, mm-hmm. like it trickles down to our children. Right. I know you and I are both moms of preschoolers. It's just, it's, it's, uh, it hits home to, to think about, kids not having the care that they need, especially when they're at that most precious age. That, yeah, definitely. Okay. I'm going to ask you one more question about you and then we'll go to our five questions. So, um, mm-hmm. like I said, we, I know you from Stanford, you, you have a business degree from Stanford. And when mm-hmm. I look at a lot of the things that people are doing, like, obviously, you know, I'm sure your graduating class is just filled with people doing incredible things and you're working really hard at a really tough solution. I'm just curious, like when you wake up every morning, like what is it that has called you to this? What, you know, mm-hmm. how, how, what keeps you driving and going? It is my belief that all kids need a great teacher and deserve a great teacher. You know, I I think about students that I've worked with in the past who struggled and did not have access to those teachers. I think conversely about the incredible teachers that I had in my K-12 experience and just feel really deeply galvanized by that unfairness and in the belief that, gosh, especially as a parent now, I want every every mom and every dad to feel confident that their kid is having a great teacher every day. I want every student to go to school with joy um, and every educator to feel like this is a job that I love and feel supported and sustained in. 
Um, that's really lovely. And I'm going to tell you like the next thing you should do too, um, because that's, that's my role here is to tell you what else you should do. That's great. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but I was just at a conference with, um, is the women's leading education conference. So it's mm-hmm. all women who are superintendents. So either district mm-hmm. superintendents or state superintendents, mm-hmm. um, talking about their job. I didn't realize how few women there are. It's, it's, it's way yeah, fewer than you think, crazy. whatever number you're coming yeah. up with, it's less than you think. Yeah. But they were talking about how it's like $175,000 of debt to go get your master's and then your doctorate mm-hmm. in education, which is what you're supposed to have. That's like yeah. the credential you need, especially if you're a woman yeah. to do yeah. this job. Um, mm-hmm. and like, luckily there's some federal loan forgiveness that they're in taking advantage of now, but like mm-hmm. it's one, the time, the energy mm-hmm. and the money to do that yeah. in order to serve your, again, your community is yeah. so, is such a huge burden that I don't think people yeah. realize is on educators. Yeah. yeah. That's right. And, and to do that alongside of working full time and often raising a family, it's just, it's an impossible situation that I think we're, we're putting people in and, and creating more barriers than there need to be. Yeah. And like I said, what we hear the most, Amira, is that there's just too much to do as a teacher mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then to also be getting your certification. So I, I, th- I applaud you yeah. and, and think it's just amazing the things that you've done. Um, and if you have new teachers who want to learn about Amira, please let me know. Yes, I'd happy yeah. to connect with them. Um, because yeah. if nothing else, the best data they'll ever see about phonics. Um, okay. Oh, yeah. So five questions that we're going to end yes. with here. Um, cause I know you've plenty to do today. So our, our podcast is called more than a test because mm-hmm. we believe that Amira is like the third generation of assessment in that instead mm-hmm. of understanding where a student is every, you know, three times a year on a, on a mm-hmm. benchmark assessment, you could know where a child is as a reader every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's kind of what we're all about. But yeah. every time I meet with somebody, they thought it meant something else. So when you heard those four words, more than a test, what does it mean to you? Huh. Well, I love I love what it means to you. I love the idea of getting that, that real time data on how our students are learning. Um, you know, it makes me think about the conversation we were having around the ways that we define great teaching and the barriers we put in place of, of teachers. And it it I do have questions around the value of these tests that we're having our educators have to take and and the um, ways that they are often blocking out people that our students most need. That's great. I, I, I don't ever thought of, I have yet to think about it, about it for teachers. And now that now I will, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, think about a moment. Uh, we call it like a literacy moment or a literature moment, a moment that you have with a book in your life that meant a lot to you. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, so many, um, you know, which is, is why I love the work that you all are doing to bring kids that joy of reading. Um, but one that I think is relevant for our conversation today is reading Savage Inequalities when I was in high school, which is just, you know, this deeply searing account of what many students in our country are experiencing. And, and to read that while a student myself in a really well-resourced school was just, it was deeply eye-opening and it, it set me on this path that I'm on of wanting to understand how this came to be and wanting to understand what we can do to make it better. I think you're just hitting like home on the importance of um, teachers and schools and education in that, right, this moment in high school, this book in high school changed your trajectory mm-hmm. forever, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's everything mm-hmm. that you do now. It, it's it's cool that you bring that up. Okay, we mm-hmm. didn't talk about this a lot because even though this podcast has a tech- technology-leaning kind of yeah. focus, that's not your focus. And so we don't need to talk yeah. about that. But I do want to know, like, what's a piece of technology that you're excited about right now? What's something you're using or your teachers are using that you love? Yeah, well, I am, of course, like everyone in this moment, so interested in, in what's going to happen with the, the AI and what that could mean for the conversation you and I were having around teachers doing so much. So I believe, of course, that there will always be a crucial role for teachers in our classrooms. And 
maybe there's a way that some of these new tech solutions, some of this new AI can reduce the burden on educators and help them to focus on what they can do best while technology does the rest. So I don't know what the answer is there, but I'm, I'm excited to see how things like Amira can make it possible for a teacher, instead of being a phonics instruction expert, to focus on the other very challenging and important parts of their role. Um, it's funny you say that. One of the things I was at a conference recently for educators around technology and a solution mm-hmm. that they were looking like in the room all was like, yes, like attendance taking. <laughs> it's shocking because yeah. you don't think yeah. about it that much, but they're like, it takes so much time when we get it yeah. wrong. It's a huge issue. Parents are called. There yeah. has got to be a way for this to be like automated. And we just have not <laughs> yes. figured that out yet. <laughs> it feels like we should definitely be able to automate. I, I don't know what the answer is, but someone should solve that. <laughs> I don't know. People were talking about like those races. Like, you know, when you run a race, you have those things you put on your shoelaces that yeah. like let you yeah. know that you've crossed the line or whatever. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I'm not saying it's the answer, but if yeah. someone has some thoughts I'm on this, saying. I support it I'm because saying. taking yeah. attendance is one of those yeah. things that just takes way yeah. too long. So yeah. that makes sense. Um, okay. The best advice you've ever received or the advice that you would give someone someone else who thinks that they want to, you know, either rise the ranks in TFA or, you know, start their own thing to kind of change the world? That's mm, I love that question. Um, I, I think, you know, really wise advice that I have, have often given and, um, and been, been the recipient of is, is to bloom where you're planted. You know, I think as you look around, as we look around at all of these challenges facing our students in our schools, it I think can be easy to want to jump from problem to problem and solution to solution, because the reality is we do need so much. We do need someone tackling all of these different questions and challenges, but to, to bloom where your planet, I think means to root yourself in the challenge that you're facing today and move forward on solutions there because we won't solve this, um, by sort of surface level solutions. We need deep, sticky, enduring, solutions for each of the different facets that are barriers to our educators and to our students. Yeah. Enduring solutions. I'm going to take that with me. All right. You kind of already answered this, but I'm going to see if there's a different answer. One book you think everyone should read. Yeah. One book that everyone should read. I think, you know, it's, it's similar in that I think it's just, uh, deeply important for everybody in education, but, um, build a better teacher I love that book because it shares shares a foundational belief that I have, which is that teaching is a skill that can be learned. It's incredibly hard, but it's something we can help people build and develop. And we can have entire systems and countries that build and develop that in our educators if we choose to do so. So I just think it's it's really crucial. I would love for everyone in our work to read this book and come away with that mindset that if we invest in our educators, we can build a workforce of people who feel deeply supported and honored um, as, as they should be. Awesome. I, I'll be honest. It's rare that there's an education book I haven't read and I haven't read it. So I'm going to order oh, well, it right I'm so glad you can add it to your list. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. And thanks for your time today. This is a great conversation and thanks for everything you're doing for our teachers, Jenny. Yeah. Thanks, Laura. Great to see you. Thanks for joining us on the More Than a Test podcast. If you found this conversation valuable, subscribe to our YouTube channel and find us on your favorite podcast platform. At Amira Learning, we believe every child deserves a chance to become a reader, and we're excited to be part of this conversation. See you next week, and thanks for joining.